Gospel of John, chapter 15. There are Christian hymns that we sing. One in particular says, They will know that we are Christians by our love. <coughs> and there have been times in the history of Christendom and the church that that is kind of contradictory the way some in Christendom, many in Christendom, have lived. And yet, when we read the gospel, it's the central message of Christian living. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. It's a measure of spirituality. So in John 15, Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches of that vine. And he says in verse 4, Abide or remain in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain or abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I, ab ab and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love is knowing than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. In this passage, you see what you would call a progression of a, of, a, of a teaching here, where Jesus says to remain in Him, and without Him, we can't bear good fruit. And He says if we remain in Him, we'll bear much fruit. And He also says, if His words remain in us, We'll ask whatever we want, whatever we desire, and it'll be done for us. In other words, it's connected to faith and prayer. You can't really overstress the importance of this or talk about it too much. Because you see that, like I said, as this thing progresses, you see exactly what Jesus is pointing at. He's pointing at loving each other the way Jesus loved us. 
He laid down his life for us. He gave himself for us. And he said that we should give our, lay down our lives for each other. It's not natural. It's not natural to give our lives, to lay down our lives for people who don't love us, for people who use us, people who speak evil of us. That's why Jesus said, without me, you can't do this. You can't do anything without me. But you can see it's his central command. He says, if you... He says, if you keep my commandments plural, you'll abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. But then in verse 12, he's, he, he goes from the plural to the singular. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Because Jesus said that <clears throat> in loving God, <clears throat> excuse me, I got a scratchy throat this morning. In loving God, and loving everyone else, he says we've fulfilled the law. And all the commandments he said hinge on, the whole law hinges on those two commandments. And so that's why he brings it down to this singular thing when he says, this is my commandment. He goes from commandments to commandment. Because all the other commandments come forth, are supposed to come forth from this. Obeying all the other commandments are supposed to come forth from this command. And he says, he's told us this so his joy might stay in us. And then it might grow and become full. You know that word joy? <coughs> Do you know what it means to experience joy? It comes through this. He said, Jesus told us this. He said, I'm telling you this so that my, your, my joy may stay in you and it might be full. The joy of when we first became a believer. The joy of first believing that Jesus laid down a life for us. In the book of Romans it says, the love of God was shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that He has given us. If we've experienced Christ, if we've been born of the Spirit, that love is in there. We may not be experiencing it. We may not have joy right now, but it's there somewhere. Now it's time to call it. Call for it. To walk in it. And Paul writes to Timothy, you have not received the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control, self-discipline, some say. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to love the way Jesus did, because it's the same Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Being born again is being born of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of love. That ability is there. But why aren't we doing it all the time? Why aren't we loving to our wives and our husband and our children and our, and our parents and those we work with sometimes and our boss who's grouchy or our, our employees who are uh, lazy? Or Why are we not 
Where's that love at those times? Well, that's something we have to ask ourselves. We have to look in the mirror. The Bible says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And it implies very clearly that we can be alive in the Spirit, but not be walking in the Spirit. we got to get face that. We have to confront that truth that we should be walking in the Spirit. And the Bible says, if we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the desires of the sinful nature or the lust of the flesh, King James says. <clears throat> so it's very clear that if we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, if we walk in the Spirit, that we're not going to walk in the flesh. can't walk in two different directions at the same time. Or can we? Or do we try to? You see, the book of James says, brothers and sisters, these things should not be. The fruit of the Spirit is... First word, first thing, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faith, self-control. And you know what that means? That means it has a lot to do with, has almost everything to do with how we interact with others. And how, what our attitude is towards others on the inside. Because it starts first on the inside. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. This my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you shall be my disciples. There are certain indications that we are disciples of Christ. And it's that we're bearing fruit, bearing good fruit, not, not, not bad fruit, but good fruit. That's the, the, these are the indications how we're walking reflects on how what's going on inside of us. How we speak, how we live, how we think, how we act. <coughs> he says to remain in his love because we can leave it. You remember last week we talked about the signs of the time and Jesus made it very clear. He said, because wickedness, iniquity will abound or flourish. He said the love of many will grow cold. There is a lot of challenges to the Christian today in an immoral, ungodly, corrupt, new age, new world society. There's a lot of things that we can be fearful about. A lot of things, you can feel a lot of pressure. And you know what happens? We turn, we become tight inside. Jesus said, remain in him. That our joy might be full. And that we'll bear much fruit. 
Remain in my love, he says. Don't let the love grow cold. And today, if that love has grown cold, today is the day to rediscover it. Not tomorrow, today. You know, when people wrong us, even those we love, it hurts more when those who we're close to that, that, love, that we love the most. It hurts more, obviously. But holding grudges hurts us who hold the grudge more than anybody else. It becomes a festering poison inside. And it may be stuff that we're holding on to way back from even in our childhood. Jesus came to deliver us from that poisonous, that toxic process that's going on inside of us. To turn it over to Him and to be made new, to be rejuvenated, to recover from a place that we're struggling from. Because believe me when I tell you this, Satan can use it to our to his advantage to bind us. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Take yourself through the life of Jesus here on this earth. First he came down from being the Lord of glory, he humbled himself and became a man, not just a man, of, not a man of royalty, but a man, a blue-collar man, a carpenter's son. And he was in obscurity until his ministry began. And then for three and a half years of ministry, he gave of himself, had no place to lay his head, he said. And he prayed into the middle of the night. In all hours of the night, he fasted. And what was it all for? Was it for him? It was for us. And if the life of Jesus is in us, that's the way he's directing us. To give of ourselves toward each other in the church, to the unbeliever, to the sinner. What was the life of Jesus like? The religious didn't understand Jesus. What in the world is this guy doing? Look at him, he's sitting there. Don't you know those people he's sitting with? They're sinners. Why is he going to Zacchaeus' house? Why is he going to Levi's house? Don't you know what kind of corrupt people they are? Stay away from them, you know? Why is, why is he not staying away from them? Because he loved them. Not just in word, but in action. And he was a great encouragement to them. And the day that Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, Jesus said, This day, salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus. But if Jesus had never gone there, and it was Jesus who took the initiative, he saw Zacchaeus up in the tree, and he stopped right in front of him. He says, Come on down, today I'm going to come to your house. And that very day, Jesus went to his house was the very day that salvation came to the house of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus spoke the words of repentance as he talked about he was going to repay all the people he ripped off and all the other stuff that he did. 
Greater no, a love is no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Love one another as I have loved you. Think of Jesus being arrested. He could have spoken up and saved himself. There's a punch of pilots that said, Do you have anything to say in your defense? He goes, Do you know I have power to release you? Oh, Jesus knew. But he did not because of his love for us. He went. He took a beating, 40 lashes, punched and slapped in the face, crown of thorns beaten into his head, carrying his cross on the Via Della Rosa so he couldn't carry it anymore, spit on, cursed at, mocked, put on a cross, mocked some more. And the whole time, he had the power to stop. He said he had the power to call for legions of angels. He didn't do it for us. And Jesus says, love each other like that. Give of yourself. Put others before yourself like Jesus did. The law says to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus takes a step further. Way down your life, brothers. Esteem others better than, more than yourself. That's a step further than the law, isn't it? To love your neighbor as yourself. Just to put others before yourself, to lay your down your life, brothers. It's in remaining in Christ, remaining in His love, walking in the Spirit, that all this is possible. Because if we don't walk in the Spirit, it's never going to happen. When people have problems, and domestic problems, and family problems, marriage problems, uh, work problems, neighborhood problems, any kind of problems interacting... Say, well, you know, you've got to love these people in return. And they'll say, well, you don't understand what they're doing to me. They're really treating me rotten, and they're really doing this, and they're really doing that. Yeah, it's not natural. But if we use, if we use carnal reasoning, carnal, the carnal mind doesn't understand the things of God we read in Romans. It takes a spiritual mind. In connection, a mind connected with the Holy Spirit to understand these things. And to be able to overcome these things. To be able to walk in the Spirit. That loving others doesn't, re doesn't require them loving us back. Because what, what did we do for Jesus that he would lay down his life for us? We didn't do anything. Yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the good people, for the moral? No. For the ungodly. That includes everybody in the human race. The ungodly. Whether we are raised in a Christian home, in a religious home, in an immoral home, in the worst of heathen homes, it doesn't matter. We're all ungodly without Christ. Without Him we can do nothing. 
And it makes us look at others differently too, doesn't it? And when we see those who are still ungodly, or those who are backslidden and living worldly ungodly lives, it makes us look at them differently because we remember where we came from. Yeah, by the grace of God, that was me. that's me. There I am, right over there, laying in the gutter. Is it for the grace of God? So, oh, that you don't know. If it wasn't, if it's not for the Lord, where you'd be right now? You don't know. But he goes, oh, I would never do this, so I'd never do that. You don't know, because there's a lot of people that have done a lot of a lot of ugly things that they never believe that they're doing. Some of them are sitting in prisons right now, wondering where it all went wrong. Or institutions, or hospitals, and all kinds of things. That have wrecked their lives. God has been gracious to us. And He has been merciful to us. And He's saying to us, go and do the same. <clears throat> and when the Bible says, love your enemies... It's not just your enemies. The Bible tells us <laughs> in Ephesians chapter 5, it's a, it's a whole chapter, back half of the chapter of Ephesians 5 is instructions on marriage to a husband and wife. And it addresses the husband and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for her. Saying the same thing as saying here in John 15. He gave, he gave himself for the church. Now do the same. It says it here. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for them. That Christian love is, is meant to be in family relationships. In all kinds of relationships. And Paul points that out because Marriage is one of those things where you're on top of each other. You're around each other a lot. You're one flesh. You have children together. Your children are with you. You've got to love your children. Lay down your life for your children. Give yourself for them. It's very demanding. Without Jesus, we can't do it. We can do nothing. We go quickly in First uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen, known as the love chapter. They read it at every wedding, just about, and it's a good reminder at marriage time. But it shouldn't end there. It shouldn't begin or end there. <clears throat> beginning of verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I remo can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. 
again, this puts the Christian life into true perspective. We can be a powerful preacher. We can be uh, a great chorus leader, a singer, you know, a gospel singer, you know, evangelist. <clears throat> we can have our own radio program. We get a Christian author. We can impress a lot of people, but not God. That's not the way that God that God sees it. Spirituality is not measured that way. Not that all those things aren't good and right and things that we should be doing as Christians. But if you read the book of Revelation, when Jesus sends a letter to the first church of the seven churches, this is the church of Ephesus. And he commended them for all their Christian works that they're doing. He says... But there's one thing wrong that I have against you. You have left your first love. He tells them to repent. You've left your first love. Jesus makes it clear in the gospel who our first love should be. And that's him. Jesus says if we love anyone more than him, we're not worthy of him. Our first love. And so this is, as we read the Word of God, it begins to wrestle with something inside of us, and that's our human nature. Because our human nature is very uncomfortable with this kind of lifestyle. That's why it says that those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and its lust and its desire. We have crucified the flesh. And so, Paul here writes <clears throat> that we can be giving to the poor, or giving all of our goods to the poor, and doing all this other prop, all kinds of spiritual gifts, and be all these great things in the ministry. Quotation marks. So it doesn't work. Without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. Without walking in the love of Christ. Paul says right here, you're making a lot of noise. It's a lot of, it's just a lot of noise. A banging of cymbals. Somebody blowing a horn or something, he says. Clanging cymbals. I remember there's been times that Kate and I have found the other of us not walking in love we've said to each other at those times, clang, 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 and we know exactly what it means. Right, Kate? <laughs> and it's just a reminder, you know, that we're not walking in love. we got to, you know, and it, it's a very sobering uh, statement, very short and to the point. But it reminds us. And then he says, and he tells us what love isn't first, and he tells us what love is. Patience. Where he says it, love suffers long. Suffering is what Jesus did on the cross. I heard a preacher one time say, long suffering means you have to suffer a long time. 
And so sometimes we have to suffer along with people. Be patient with them and bear with them for a long time. They say that Rome wasn't built in a day. Well, people don't always change overnight. Sometimes they do, but sometimes, you know, when we're discipling, when we're preaching to unbelievers, when we're calling backslidden to come back to the Lord, doesn't always happen when we want it to, or when we call them to. That's where faith comes in. Love is not envious and jealous. It's not puffed up, or some versions say it doesn't boast. It's not boastful and proud. It's not rude and considerate. It's not inconsiderate. It's not self-seeking. And this is where that word self-seeking can be, you can use the word selfish. Self-seeking is selfish. It's all about me. <clears throat> and, all, and all things that affect me. And that's normal and natural. That's the natural man. That's not the spiritual man. That's why we can't do any of this without Jesus. He says to walk in the Spirit. You know, we can think about those who have wronged us the most in life. We could just sit there and make a list from the first, the worst, and then go down the line to the least. Can we forgive all them today? Can we walk in love towards them today? That's the way of the cross. Jesus said, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's not easily angered. Uh-oh. <laughs> There's that old temper. That thing that rises up inside of us. <clears throat> I remember there was a time as a young Christian, I said, I just can't control myself. But then, from hearing preachers and on, on the subject and listening to the Word of God and studying and praying, God showed me. It's not that I can't. It's that I won't. It's because <clears throat> God has given me the ability. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. You know what that meant? That meant I was living in a deception. The thing, oh, I can't control myself because all this bad stuff happens. Jesus said this world's going to be filled with tribulation. So it's not about what's going on outside of us. It's about what's going on inside of us. It's about whether we're walking in the Spirit. I have heard people say, I would walk in the Spirit if this was different and that was different. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if that's where you are, if that's where your circumstances are in life, that is where God is calling you to walk in the Spirit. If you're in prison, if you're in a bad situation, 
if you're in a bad job, if you're in a, a troubled household, if you're in a dysfunctional household, it doesn't matter where you are. Wherever you are, to walk in the Spirit, to walk in love in all those situations. Love is not easily angered. Not easily provoked. It bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, and endures all things. Did you ever really think about what these this verse is talking about? When it says, it bears all things. <laughs> what does it mean to bear all things? So we've been talking bear all things that are coming our way, that people do to us, you know, to, to return evil with good, to, to bless those who curse us. We could go on and on about what bearing all things means. It believes all things. Does that mean we should believe everything anybody tells us that's walking in love? Of course. One version makes it a little makes it a little more easy to understand. It says love believes the best of others. We're sharing the word with people. We're preaching to them, or we're calling them to repentance, come back to the Lord. We should be believing in faith that God is going to work with us to respond. I have heard Christians say out of their own mouth, that person does not want to, doesn't want to change. He'll never, he'll never follow the Lord. She'll never follow the Lord. God forbid we should have that attitude. As we were studying some weeks ago, we could have all I've, we could have all said that about Saul of Tarsus. We live in that generation. Who in the world would have thought that that man was going to become who he became when he was going about in a rampage, in a rage, arresting Christians, committing them to prison, and having them sentenced to death? Who would have thought that that guy was going to become that guy? It was the grace of God. Jesus said, he is my chosen vessel. Now go, he told Ananias. Ananias was afraid to go, to go and, uh, and, and lay hands on him for the healed blindness. Like, oh, oh Lord, you, that guy heard he's, a lot of bad things about that guy. Jesus said to him, God. Love believes the best of others. It hopes all things. All the things that we're praying for. All these things have at their foundation the love of Christ. That's at the foundation of true ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's saying. That's what it's telling us here. It endures all things. Love never fails. I have heard Christians say, and I've said it myself in times past, I've tried to love this person, but it's kind of like saying, I'm done with loving them, you know? It's like, I've done it and it didn't work. What means, you know, this is the problem when we're loving those who don't are not responding. After a while of doing this, we, we stop 
we don't endure. Yet the Lord is enduring us every day, with us every day. His love towards us doesn't end. And he puts up with all our nonsense. And so, go and do the same. Love endures all things. But I'll just put it through. And yeah, it can feel exasperating at times. But remember, love never fails. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It is the testimony of the Christian. When you read this story, the story, the testimony of the early church fathers that were written in the centuries, the first couple centuries after, the, uh, after Jesus, one of them testified about what non-believers were saying about the Christians. And, they had inter and, and some of them had interviews with non-Christians. And they talked about, they said, see how they love each other. Look at, there was this testimony going on, how they were taking care of each other, how they were enduring with each other, being patient with each other. They were walking in the love of Jesus. They were laying down their lives for each other. They were taking in people who were poor. They were, they were feeding the hungry. They were clothing, naked. The love of Jesus that was shed abroad in our heart was shed abroad in the world around them. They were lights in the world. That is the calling of Jesus. To live the way he did. To walk the way he walked. It says it. it. Says it in the New Testament. We go to 1 John chapter 3. Actually, uh, yeah. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 10. First John 3.10 In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Beginning of the gospel. Message from Jesus that you, you read it already, that you should love one another. And he says that's measure or spirituality. If we don't love our brother, he says, the difference between the children of God and the children of the devil is very strong and manifested. We don't practice righteousness, we don't live righteousness, and we don't love our brother. We're not of God. We've left God. Verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother remains in death. God gives us, when we are come to Christ, when we are saved, when we're born again. He gives us a love for 
his other children, as well as our neighbor. He puts his love in our hearts. Verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for our brother. He says, by this we know love, what Jesus did for us. That's how we know love. He says, we should do that too, for our brothers and sisters. We should be looking out for each other. Verse 18 says, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Not just a lot of talk, not just a lot of I love you. Telling each other we love each other is great. And we should. But it's got to be more than that. In our way we interact, in the way we live towards each other. It should be the truth. And it says, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before God. For our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Brothers, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment. He does it again, just like in 1 John. I mean, just like in John 15. He does it here again. He's talking about keeping His commandments, and He says, and this is His commandment. He goes from plural to singular. It's not by accident that, that He's doing that. Because he's showing us the central foundation of the Christian life is to walk the way Jesus did. That's Christian living. And to love the way Jesus loved. Laying down our lives. Giving of ourselves. This is what Jesus means when he says that we have to lose our lives in order to be his disciple. That we have to forsake all to follow him. This is what he's talking about. To lay down our life to live the life of Jesus. It's an exchanged life, one preacher called. He wrote a book by that name, The Exchanged Life. Trading in my life for the life of Jesus. Instead of living my life, I'm going to live the life of Jesus. No more self-will. No more self self-motivation. No more self-seeking. And he says this gives us confidence if we live this way. And whenever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 23 says, and this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us command. In the next chapter, it tells us love has been perfected among us that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as He is, so we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but, perf but because fear involves torment. But perfect love casts off all fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears 
has not been made perfect in love. It's a lot here. What we're saying is, That we have confidence before God because we're walking in love. We're not feeling this negative conviction. We have confidence before Him. That we're walking in the Spirit. We have a clear conscience. It helps us to trust God. It says we have confidence and we receive these things. We read that in John 15, the same thing. It says if we continue in His love, we ask what we will and be done. If we remain in Jesus, we will, we will, whatever we ask, we will receive from Him. Saying it here too, it unlocks the door, because the Bible says faith works by love. That's how it works. That that's the door that unlocks faith, is walking by walking in love. They work together. in Galatians 5, 6. Circumcision or uncircumcision means anything but faith that works by love. If we're unloving, it hinders our prayers. It tells us that if we don't honor our wives, that our prayers will be hindered. Just honor your wives. And be considered to them as the weaker vessel. So your prayers aren't hindered. It's just one example. But it's telling us here, it affects our confidence when we come before the throne of God. And so if we haven't been walking in love, it's time to repent so that we can have a clear conscience. But then it's, don't go back to walking and living the old way. I think that uh, what we read in 1 John 4, where it says, As he is, so we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. That's how it works. And that's when we cast out all fear. The opposite of fear is faith. Then we can have faith. We can be in that place where we're walking in confidence with God. So we're walking in the Spirit. We're not under condemnation. That's what I have. I'm going to encourage you brothers to, you know, any brothers want to comment on this or anything else that you just want to share. Uh, Dave, or Josiah, any of you other brothers? Ed, Ben, <coughs> Justin, any of you guys you want to say something? Anything else you want to share not related to this? Too? I had uh, two testimonies that I wanted to share. Like, uh, two praise reports. Um, <laughs> 
morning, I want to look beginning in uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 14. shared on Wednesday night what we will be talking about today in the wet men's meeting that mentioned it. What we'll be talking about today was total surrender. Beginning in verse 15. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said to him, A certain man gave a supper and invited him, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all made with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. So another said, I have married a wife and can't come. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the, master, and the servant said, Master... It is done as you commanded, and still there is room. And the master said to his servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers, and sister, and yes, his own life, also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross <clears throat> and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intended to build a tower does not sit down first and count the, toss, the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Thus, after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish it. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. <clears throat> what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet with him against him 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, how shall it be seasoned? It shall be fit neither for land or a dunghill, but men throw it out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And this is a powerful passage of Jesus speaking here. And there is a very strong and powerful message in it. And it's a message where people are invited to the feast. A great supper. And we know it 
before Jesus returns, He has a great supper with all the saints before He returns to claim the earth and establish His throne in Jerusalem. Then He has this great supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and many are invited. This is the great supper Jesus is talking about. And people are making excuses. They're too busy. This, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, here it's like, what are the excuses? You know, I bought a piece of ground, I got these new ox, I got a, a new wife, all this other stuff. Too busy. Too much going on in life. Just like Jesus said, the cares of this world. Choke, you know, if we allow them to, they'll choke out the word and we'll become unfruitful. And in the same way, you see these people here, they're not really for, for surrendered to Jesus' lordship. And so, Jesus, and so the Lord says, okay, just go out and get even the lowest in society and the weakest in society, the sickest in society. Just so I want my house to be full. So it says in Corinthians, not many of the great and the powerful and the rich one are the that will will come. God chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise. And so, just fill my house, the Lord says. And so the crowd draw draws a big crowd, and then as the crowd draws, he continues on this theme and he says something very challenging that we God has to open our eyes our heart to understand open our minds, open our understanding to understand, to reveal what he's saying here that if we don't hate our father, mother, wife, children brothers and sisters in our own life, we can't be his disciple I remember somebody Throwing this up at me was not a believer, and this is one of the reasons why. Because you're supposed to hate everybody in your own family, you know, your own wife, your own children, you know. Obviously, you got to look a little deeper than that. So, one of the Ten Commandments to honor your parents. We're told to love our children. So, obviously, there's something deeper than just what's on the surface there. What we have here is our first love is Jesus. In Ephesians, I speak to the Ephesian church, Jesus sent them a letter saying, you've left your first love. We must love him and put him first in our life and not put others before that, including those who are closest to us. And that means our decisions have to please God rather than even our own wife our own children, our own self, our own life. We have to put Him, <coughs> make Him our first love. Embrace Him as our Lord and our first love. And so that's why He says something to the extreme when He says to hate you know, all these people. Of course, not to hate Him. We're called to love everybody. Last week we were reading that. Love everyone else as much as ourselves, including our wife, our children, and everybody else. But you see that Jesus is making a comparison. 
about loving him, even if it means that others won't love us, and the decisions that we make, the way we live, things like that. We were talking weeks ago about the fear of man as a snare. We make wrongful decisions because of the fear of man instead of putting God first and loving him first. And he continues on this. It says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A follower of Christ must bear, the, bear his own cross, pick up his cross and follow after him. And we know that a cross is painful. And we know that it's costly. Look what it costs Jesus. It says in Galatians 5, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh and its affections and desires, its lusts. <clears throat> Crucifixion means it's going to, of the flesh means pain to the flesh, denying the flesh, denying our bodies, denying our desires of our carnal nature, the old man. Suffering. Putting others before ourselves, we just read in Philippians 2. That was the attitude of Christ. That's sacrificial. That means suffering on our own part. And laying down of ourselves like Jesus did. Jesus is showing us that this is what a disciple is. This is what a Christian is, what a follower of Christ is. And then he talks about canon the cost. Just like a guy building a tower, a man going to war, a king going to war. they got to figure out. Guys, the carpenter, he's going to build a house. Well, do I have enough money to pay for all this? And do I have the energy and the... Do I have what it takes to build this house? And can you man, imagine a man, he builds a house halfway. He doesn't finish it. People laugh. Look at this guy. He started building his house. He ran out of money. He went bankrupt. You know, people mock him. People in the world will mock him. And so... The same way, there are many who, be, who begin following the Lord, but they don't continue. And people say, oh, look at this guy. Say, say he's a Christian. Look what he's doing now. Where he's at now? Mockers. Verse 33. So likewise, whatever, wherever, whoever of you, I'm sorry, whoever of you, who does not forsake all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Now some people will interpret it that you have to sell every last stitch of everything you have. To sell and to give it all away. And to, to just wander around. And be a beggar or whatever, you know, just, you know. Now... This is not, for most people, what he's talking about. Well, the apostles, their, their lives are extreme. It's not the call of, you know, of most Christians. Again, it is the perspective, the same as like hating all those you love. To forsake all is a total surrender to Christ. And... That, that teaching here of Jesus, of forsaking all, means our whole life. That we give up the life of ourselves, our, our way of life, our will, our self-will and everything about it, what we want to do, what our flesh wants to do, 
and we crucify. And we embrace instead the life that Jesus walked. Now people will say, well, that's impossible to live like Jesus. That's why He gave us His Holy Spirit. That's why we are born again. To live the life of Jesus. George, George Mueller was once asked, how is it you're living such a, a radical life like this? This life of faith. This life of giving of yourself this way. This life of trust. You know, of giving of yourself fully, totally like this. And in his answer, his answer was long. I just remember a couple of things. He says, it's only by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit that I'm able to live this kind of life of surrender. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's God's grace that leads us away from self and to this life in the Spirit. And a lot of people will say, you know, I've been praying for God to fill me with the Spirit. I feel so dry. I feel so empty. Well, the answer is is found in all of this that we're reading. That first we hear Him, this teaching of Jesus of total surrender. Now to emphasize what total surrender is a little bit, we we'll go back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 20. And this is a story from just a, a five verses from 1 Kings chapter 20. And this is how it's kind of done. One, one king surrenders to another, or one army surrenders to another. Beginning in chapter 20 of 1 Kings, and verse 1. Now Benadad, king of Syria, gathered all of his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him, with horses and chariots, and went up and besieged Samaria, and made war against it. Not only did he go with his army, but it says he brought 32 kings with him. Well, who are these 32 kings? Well, a lot of times, when uh, a country, one nation surrenders to another, or one province or state uh, surrenders to another, there's a total surrender. Then the kings of the other nations that were surrendered, they, they go to fight with war with the king who captured them. So all these, these 32 other kings are going with the king of Benadad of Syria. All these other kings that are in subjection to him. And so they go to war against Samaria, which is northern northern part of Israel, and made war against it. Verse 2. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel. And he said to him, Thus says Benadad, King of Syria, your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives are mine, and children are mine. <coughs> and the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, 
just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Benadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. It's funny we should be using the example of King Ahab was a terrible, was an evil king. But you see the whole point of what we're talking about here. The whole idea of total surrender. One king says, the Lord's, he calls, even calls him Lord in return. The king says, everything you have, your silver, your gold, your riches, your property, everything that belongs to you, now it's mine. Your, your wives, even your loveliest wives, your best children, everything. When you talk about taking away your wife and children, I mean, that, that's everything. I mean, you know, taking away everything. You know, you're, you're being stripped down to nothing. Your property, your wealth, <coughs> everything. He says, it's all mine now. And the answer the king Ahab says, My lord, O king, it's just as you say. My and all I have are yours. And that's what total surrender is. And it's not just in talk. It's not, this, isn't just a, this isn't just supposed to be a speech. You know, say, oh Lord, I'm making everything in my life yours. We may have said that many times, but there might be areas of our life where we're holding back from loving the way Jesus tells us to love. We're someone who's being stinky to us, and we're just like, I know I'm supposed to be loving him, but then we, you know, we retaliate, we chew them out and return. Or, or we do something we shouldn't. This, this is what total surrender is about. Is a total surrender of our heart, of our life, of everything in our being. And we surrender it. Not just in word, and, just, and not just a lot of talk. But we live out this life of surrender. Where we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You say, well that's a little radical, a little fanatical not my words. It's not my idea. It's what Jesus said. And that's what we have to wrestle with, these words of Jesus. And that's why some of the Jesus, things Jesus says make us very uncomfortable. We feel this squirming and, and this, this wrestling match going on inside of our spirit. It's because we don't feel comfortable with the words of Jesus sometimes. And this certainly does not make us comfortable when it says that we should love ourselves the way Jesus did. To put others before ourselves, like we read all the stuff we read last week. Boy, if some of that stuff doesn't make us feel uncomfortable inside and challenge us and fight and wrestle with it, but the good news is that God has given us His Holy Spirit. So that by the Holy Spirit we can put to death the deeds of the flesh, like it says in Romans chapter 8. So that we can, as we mentioned earlier in Galatians 5, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh and its lust and its affections and its desires. He's given us the Holy Spirit to be able to crucify our will, the old man, 
This is all done by faith. We must believe that these things are true. When I was a young Christian, I I grew up in a family of very emotional people. <laughs> Hot-headed and so forth. And the whole idea of controlling your temper at all times was a completely foreign idea. <laughs> and then you begin to read it in the gospel. I says, I can't, you know, and I, you know, and then you become a husband and a father, and you have these young young children and toddlers, and you know, and all these challenges coming at you at once, and all these pressures and everything. And all that stuff, you feel like you're in a pressure cooker. And how does that pressure come out? <laughs> we start to lose our temper. We don't we don't practice self-control the way we should. And I and I kept on saying to myself, and I said it out loud, I just can't control myself. Well, you know why I said those things and why we all have said something like that at some time? It's because we're looking at ourselves and our own strength and our own ability. In the flesh. But that's not the call of God. The call of God is to look at ourselves through the eyes of faith, that we are new creations in Christ. And the new man is created after God himself. We've been given the divine nature that is after him in righteousness and true holiness. And that means... God has given me the power to control myself, to put to death through the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit. That cross means liberty for us. Not just eternal life and forgiveness of sins, but it's liberty. The freedom to live the life of Christ. And Jesus said, He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Free for real. We are free. So I don't feel free today. I haven't been forever bound in anger and frustration and, and all kinds of stuff. I've been feeling all kinds of bad things and it's, I've been living it out. What's wrong? We have to mix faith with the things we have heard, or it will do us no good. It won't benefit us at all, like it says in Hebrews. If we don't mix faith with what we hear, we must believe what we hear, that we have been set free. That's like sitting in a jail cell. And somebody comes and unlocks the door at night when you're in sleep, and they leave you a note saying, Jail's unlocked. Go ahead and get out. And there it is, written right on the piece of paper. And then we sit there in the jail, say, "Oh, I hope someday I can get out of this prison. I hope we can get out of this prison someday." You've all already been told the door's unlocked. Get out of prison. Get out of that dungeon, that giant despair, and move out into the freedom, into the light of Christ. While we sit there and say, "Oh, I can't do it. I can't do it," and Jesus says, "You've been set free." He who the sun sets free is free for real, indeed. 
So we shouldn't walk, continue on in unbelief. So that's how this works. We have to believe these truths that the Word of God says in order for them to benefit us. Otherwise, we'll gain no insight from it. Jesus gave a parable, a dual parable in Matthew 13, two short ones, where he talked about a man who discovered a treasure in a field, and he sold everything he had to buy that field so that he could have that treasure. And then the other parable is where this man comes across this pearl of great price. And he takes everything he has and sells it so that he can buy this pearl of great price. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like that. Forsaking all to follow him. A total surrender. Everything that I have is yours. My time, my resources, everything you've given me, my home. My privacy, whatever. You know, it's all my life is yours. My decisions under your lordship. Whatever you want. That's what I'm that's what I'm gonna do by your by your grace and power. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, He who finds his life will lose it. But he who loves his life, or who loses his life, for my sake, will find it. Losing our life. Surrender of our life. We see other examples of surrender. We've mentioned several times in the past couple months about the story of Zacchaeus. When Jesus comes to his house, he gives he, he repents of his sinful life and he gives half of what he has to the poor. And with the other half that's left, he repays those he ripped off four times as much as he ripped them off. Much poorer man when he's done. Levi leaves his profitable business as a tax collector when Jesus says, Follow me. Forsakes all. Surrender. I'm leaving this lucrative business and all that it has following Christ. Saul of Tarsus, a highly respected man, on the road to Damascus, has a meeting with the Lord. He's blinded for three days. He receives his sight. What does he go and do? He goes and completely destroys his reputation and all of his high standing with his nation, with his society, by going into the synagogue and saying, you know, this, all this persecuting and all this executing, all the stuff we're doing that I've been a part of, I've been ahead of, I'm wrong. Jesus is the Christ. Total surrender. Become a man of God. This past week we read in Acts chapter 19 
where that the Ephesian church, they were moved with conviction. They came confessing their sins. And they, they were practicers of sorcery and black magic and all that other stuff. All this demonic stuff. And they took all the books that taught you how to do this stuff. And they threw them into a big pile and set them on fire. And it was worth about 50,000 pieces of silver. A massive fortune. Total surrender. Forsaking all to follow Christ. And that's not just meant to be at the beginning of conversion like these people. That surrender is to continue like you see in the life of Paul. And the things that he suffered for the name of Christ. And many others. The total surrender of the, of the fishermen. Peter and Andrew, James and John. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So they left their boats and their business, their father's business. Off they went to follow Christ. To become fishers of men. And the things that they went through in their lives. Most of them uh, killed for the name of Jesus. But some are not willing to completely surrender. They have not counted the cost of following Christ. And today's the day to count the cost once again of following Christ. And what total surrender means. What does it mean, total surrender, on a practical, everyday level? People let, refuse to let go of material things. Sometimes a business. Sometimes a hobby. Sometimes certain forms of entertainment. Certain activities. Some of them may not even be wrong or sinful. But it's taking up our time and our energy and things that God could use us for His glory. And He's putting His finger on it. We might suffer many things for many years until we surrender to that. Total surrender. If we don't, there's things that are, God is going to use to try to reach us, to try to grab us, grab our attention, not just to grab our attention, but to submit ourselves to His Lordship in areas that we're holding back from total surrender. And we could apply many different examples of that, maybe some of the brothers will. And so finally, the last reference that I have is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 17, 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Spirit of the Lord, now where the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are, beginning, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have this ministry, have we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. 
but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This is meant to be the change, the transformation of every Christian, every disciple of Christ. As we behold Christ, through the Holy Spirit, He reveals Christ to us, and then this transformation by the Spirit of the Lord. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. And later on, in chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also be made manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. He talks about renouncing our old life. This transformation happens. And we renounce our own way of life, our own will. And he says we're always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That continual crucifying of the flesh every day. As Paul said, I die daily. This is meant to be a continual process, a continual crucifixion. Dying daily to our will, to our life, to the old man, to our desires, to our will. To our way of life, for the life of Christ. And it says that because this death process, this crucifixion is continually going on, he says the life of Jesus is revealed, it's manifested in our bodies. People see Christ in us. Without crucifixion, <coughs> there's no manifestation of Christ. That surrender to Christ is how the life of Christ is, is manifested in our mortal bodies. And that's where the filling, where we, we, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, not to be filled with wine, which is excessive, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, this constant command of being filled with the Spirit. We could pray, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I, you know, I, feel, I don't feel full of the Holy Spirit. Crucifixion comes before the life of Christ is manifested in our mortal body. Death is at work in us, and it will breathe life into others. Death is working in you, in us, but life <coughs> in you. People are saved. People, God uses us to turn people to the Lord, to to disciple each other, to help each other, to, to love each other the way we're supposed to. So, I'll turn it over to the rest of you brothers to share. Any brothers from the men's meeting or anybody else wants to comment on this or anything else that they have? It's open, the floor is open to all you brothers.
says to me is if I have any of those things uh, that I can run to if I feel like God is telling me do this uh, to be perfected but I go to mom and dad and say do I have to do that mm. and they'll what they will do is spare you from being a total disciple if you listen to all these different relationships I have to have one I'm listening to, and that is Jesus. So, I think the, the thought we have to concentrate on about this is a disciple, and what is that? One who's being trained by the one who is training you. And it can't be two, can't be three, it can't be different ones that you can run to. No, you have to listen. we have to listen to Jesus ourselves. And that is just what we tend not to do. Isn't it? We tend to try to lean on this person or that person yeah. and try to hear whether this is now the right way or not. And I remember back a year, about a year after I gave my heart to Jesus to be his disciple, and made a covenant with him to follow him what he shows me. Then one day, I mean, I didn't really follow through with what I said. I still, I was a, I was raised Amish. I was still, I was still trying to fit following Jesus with being an Amishman. And you know, they have quite a disciplined life, don't they? They do. But one day I was walking over toward my parents. I was out on the road. I was they just lived down the road a little piece. And uh, I heard in my heart God saying, Dan, you have a choice to make. You promised me to follow me what I show you. Mm. Now you have you can make a choice. You can have your mom and dad and all your Amish friends and your family, or you can have me. And I was like, Lord, I have to have you. I give up all that other. You know, that was a tough decision to make because who else do I have? But Jesus, you know. Give up all your friends. Your family, everything, your children, all that. Why? Because he wants to train me. And he can't do a perfect job unless I am his disciple. 
total and complete. So I th I think about we have to think about okay what does he want to do what does what does he mean to do with me to be when I'm his disciple. I have much to learn, much to be cleansed from, much to be changed, changed my mind on. So I think of Hebrews chapter twelve. talks about here about the chastening and uh, it says that if we don't experience chastening we're not a son we're a bastard mm -hmm. so chastening is for the purpose of training me under the one who is discipling me um, but what is his reason for chastening me, and what is his goal? I have to think of, I don't know which one of the prophets was, Jeremiah, or I believe it was Jeremiah who said to go down to the potter's house, and there he will speak to him. The, the clay was in the potter's hand to make out of that clay whatever he wanted to make what the potter wanted to make and that's what he wants us to understand I'm being given an opportunity to lay patient like a lamb in, in God's hand to be trained by him so here in chapter 12 um, if I get the right verse here Verse 5, so where it starts. Pardon me? Verse 5, where it starts. Uh, yeah, that is part of it. Uh, it starts there. Okay, I'm going to read from there till I get to the verse that I really want to point out what God's purpose is. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence, shall we not much rather be in subjection to the fathers of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. So I have to have that vision and desire to be holy as he is holy, to be pure as he is pure. If I don't have that as my goal, then the work is not going to go forward. But if that's my goal, then I'm willing to be, let Jesus chastise me. So I can be partaker of his holiness. 
Think of that. What a tremendous uh, blessing that will be to be partakers of Jesus' holiness. That's the goal. So is that what we want? Are we willing to forsake everything for that one thing? To be holy as he is holy? I, I think that's the whole issue. Um, and he's not going to be able to make me into that if I listen to other voices. If I listen to any of these other influences. And you know, it's like a, like I shared. I have, a, I have a choice. I can have my friends. I can have my family. I can have all this. Brothers and sisters or whatever. But I'm not going to gain holiness. Be not partaker of his holiness if I do that. I'll be made like the ones I listen to. <coughs> and if I if if they are not encouraging me to just listen to God, just listen to Him, then they're not helping Jesus in this work. Paul spoke about being co-workers with Christ. If I want to be a co-worker, I must work for the same purpose as Christ does. It may help people to be holy as he is holy. But that's that's the, the vision God gave me. Mm -hmm. Hey, we are called, but we have to have connection with the head, not just in the beginning of our conversion, but all the way through the chastening, uh, judgment coming at the house of God. Uh, that's what has to start, like Peter says, it first begins at us because he wants a holy people uh, of which most believers say they don't even believe that's possible. Do we believe that? It's not even possible to be holy like that. It, it's what he refers to in Hebrews chapter 6, let us go on to perfection. Or, like was mentioned before, to maturity, which is, God is the one who decides what is perfect, not us. We can look at each other and, uh, or look at him, he's, he's saying we can go on to perfection, but look at what he said, he said. You know, they did the same thing to Jesus, here are the blood and the wine giver in their eyes. We can be the same thing. People keep trying to strip away from you what you've been called to. People will do it if you allow them. God's word stands there as our uh, as the mirror we can look into and compare ourselves with Him and see what needs to be cleansed. I praise God for what we could hear this morning.